Well, good evening. It's great to see all the supporters and grads who have come to join us tonight. Having you join us is a great encouragement to us, and I hope being here, meeting together with us around God's Word in the fellowship of His Spirit is an encouragement to you as well. You should have received an outline on your way in. A bit of a heads up though, to make sure we don't go over time tonight, I've pushed the section on spiritual warfare till tomorrow night because we've got lots of great stuff to talk about from God's Word already tonight. But if you're particularly interested in that, you can always catch up later when the talks make it online via the EU podcast or the EU website. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, as you've promised, please speak to us now through your word and by your spirit. And we pray that your word would not return to you empty, but will fulfill in our lives together all that you purpose for it, so that we might bring glory to you. We pray it in Jesus' name and the power of his spirit. Amen. Well, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, then you have the Holy Spirit in your life. He has taken up residence in your life. We looked at some of the implications of that last night. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 6, your body, your physical body, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. But it's not just about us as individuals. Together, as God's people, we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, which is there on page 33 of your outlines. The second passage there on your page, Paul says, Do you not know that you together are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you together? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is holy and you together are that temple. I've added in the together there in brackets because the you is plural, which is tricky to indicate in English. He's addressing the whole group, the community of believers there in Corinth. Together as followers of Jesus, we are the new temple for the one true living God where God's Spirit dwells. The question we're going to think about tonight is there at the bottom of page 33. What then does it look like when God's Spirit is powerfully present among His people? Think about the question for a moment. What does it look like when God's Spirit is powerfully present amongst His people? Miracles? Exorcisms? Words of knowledge? Prophecy? Tongues? healing. When we think of God's Spirit in power, our minds sometimes leap to the unusual, maybe the unexpected. Or if we're in a more conservative bent, we associate maybe the powerful presence of the Spirit amongst these people with fantastic singing that moves you, or, or preaching that's passionate and convicting, or seeing people come to faith in the, for the first time. Now, all of those things can be the work of God's Spirit, yes, but the primary working of God's Spirit amongst us is something else. What does it look like when God's Spirit is powerfully present amongst His people? 
Well, the first and foremost answer over the page is love. Here is an absolutely essential and often overlooked spiritual fact. Ready? Love is the premier mark of the Spirit's powerful presence. Love is the premier mark of the Spirit's powerful presence. It's not miracles, prophecy, healings, moving worship sessions, powerful preaching. It's not even bold Christian witness or enduring persecution. The premier mark of the Spirit's powerful presence in the Christian community is love. Why can I say that? Well, for starters, let's look at the way the discussion of spiritual gifts is framed in the Bible. The Corinthian church in the first century were fully into powerful and impressive spirituality, or so they thought. They were enamoured with the seeming impressive spiritual gifts, things like tongue speaking. So the Apostle Paul has to write to them to pull them back a bit and get them back on the right track. And in 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, Paul discusses spiritual gifts. But Paul very deliberately shapes his discussion to reflect the point he really wants to make. So let me trace out the shape for you. If you've got your Bible there, open up your Bible and have a bit of a look at it. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Find 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Call it up on your phone. Just scan through it. It's all about spiritual gifts. When you get to the end of the chapter, and remember, the chapter, num the chapter numbers and the verse numbers are all added much, much later. They weren't original. When you get to the end of what we call chapter 12, notice the very last verse, verse 31. Paul finishes that section by saying, but strive for the greater gifts, which he's been talking about. He's been talking about gifts. And then he says, and I will show you a still more excellent way, more excellent than even the greatest of the gifts. And then Paul heads into what we call chapter 13, which is all about love. Love is the more excellent way than merely possessing gifts or even using gifts when you use them in a self-focused way. Love is at the top of the mountain peak. And then notice, if you just scan down to the end of chapter 13, notice how chapter 14 begins. He says, pursue love and strive for the spiritual gifts, especially that you might prophesy. And then Paul continues on the rest of that chapter, discussion of spiritual gifts and their use. Notice those two linking sentences that I highlight for you, they mirror each other. He says, strive for the greater gifts and I'll show you a more excellent way, the way of love. And then he says, pursue love and strive for the spiritual gifts. It reflects this shape with love as the most excellent peak right in the middle of his discussion of gifts. You get what he's saying? Love is the big deal. Love towers over Paul's discussion of gifts. So any discussion of gifts happens in the shadow of love. Paul's making the point, love is the premier mark of true Christian spirituality when the Holy Spirit is powerfully present amongst his people. 
It's not just here in 1 Corinthians. In each place where spiritual gifts are discussed in the New Testament, love is always the context. So in Romans chapter 12, 1 Peter chapter 4, Ephesians 4, you can look up the verses there on your page. You'll see that what's talked about is love or serving others or humility and not thinking too much of yourself. Love is always the context. Actually, love is more than just the context. Love is outrageously essential. At the very beginning of 1 Corinthians 13, at this mountain peak of love, Paul makes exactly this point by using a series of examples. They're sort of supercharged examples. Have a look at the passage there on your page. He says, If I speak in the tongues of mortals, okay, you know, just regular speech, that's normal, and of angels, well, now that's a bit more impressive, isn't it? Talking in the tongues of angels, but if I can do that, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So, so much for your impressive tongue speaking. If you don't have love, you're just a noisy gong clanging over and over and over and over again. Then he says, and if I have prophetic powers, it's pretty impressive, and then, but then supercharge it, and understand all mysteries and, and all knowledge. And if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains. And you're thinking, now that's impressive spirituality. Move mountains. But I do not have love. I am nothing. You can be the most theological, insightful person of your generation. And some of you here probably think you are. You could be the person of the deepest faith, but you are nothing if you don't have love. It all counts for naught. He says, if I give away all my possessions, now just think about it, give, imagine giving away all your possessions. Yep, who wants an iPhone? Go. Who wants an iMac? There you go. Who wants, give, give, give it all away, give away all my possessions because of Christ. That seems some serious generosity, but let's supercharge that. And if I hand over my body so that I may boast, that is, if I die for Jesus, a full-on martyr for the faith, but do not have love, I gain nothing. You think, all that sacrifice... You've died for Jesus' name. Surely that sacrifice is worth something in God's sight. Nope. If you do not have love, you gain nothing. Do you see why I say? Love is outrageously essential. It's outrageously essential. It is the premiere, the fundamental mark of the Spirit's powerful presence among us. You can see Jim Packer's helpful comment there on your page. Any mindset which treats the Spirit's gifts, ability and willingness to run around and do things, as more important than his fruit, Christ-like character in personal life, is spiritually wrong-headed and needs correcting. It's true, the Spirit gives 
gifts and works fruit in you, but they're not equally important. Character, fruit from the Spirit is more important than gifts. That's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, that the fruit of love is more important than any gift. So much so that no matter how awesome your gift is, without love, you are nothing. It does make you ask the question, why? Why is love so outrageously essential? You start thinking about it in terms of what the New Testament teaches us. Well, yes, Jesus certainly put a high premium on love. This is my commandment, he said in John 15, that you love one another as I have loved you. We're to mirror Jesus' sacrificial, other-person-centered love for us in our love for each other. According to Jesus, that sort of love is what we're meant to be known for in the wider community. John 13, Jesus says, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love is the defining mark of Jesus' people. Love for the lonely amongst us. Love for the weak. Love for those who are struggling with sin. Love for the ones struggling with doubt. Love for the ones amongst us that society marginalizes. We rejoice with those amongst us who are rejoicing. We mourn with those amongst us who are mourning. We encourage the faint-hearted. We support those who are weighed down. We love those amongst us who are difficult to love, even though it costs us, even though it costs us dearly to love them, because we know that loving us cost Him dearly. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. haven't really answered our question though, why is love so outrageously essential? Jesus puts a high premium on it, okay, we get that, but why is love so outrageously essential? Why is love the premier mark of the Spirit's powerful presence? The answer, I take it, is because God is love. I don't just mean that He loves us, I mean in Himself, from all eternity, as Father, Son, and Spirit, God has always existed in an eternal relationship of love within Himself. Have you ever thought about the fact that before the one true living God created anything, before there was anything else, no time, no space, just God, He was love as Father, Son, and Spirit in eternal relationships of love. Love is older than the universe. That's not something you just see on a nice card you give somebody. Like, it's actually true. I've never seen it on a card. It'd, it'd be a good Christian card. But it's, love is actually older than the universe because God is love in Himself and He expresses that love towards us. So why is love so essential for God's people? 
Because when we become Christians, we are united to Jesus the Son through the Spirit. We are adopted into God's family and caught up into that eternal relationship of love between the Father and the Son. And we're caught up into that relationship together. If we've been caught up into that eternal relationship of love between the Father and the Son in the power of the Spirit, it's no wonder then that we're expected to show love for one another as we're caught up together in unity to the Son. And the good news is that turning you into a lover like Jesus is what the Holy Spirit is seeking to do in you. Because the Spirit empowers and equips us for love. I don't think it's an accident that love comes first in Paul's list of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, he says, is love in Galatians 5. That fits with love's status as outrageously essential. Love is the very image of God. And time and time again, we're told that the Spirit empowers us to love one another. You can see some of the verses there on your page. Paul writes to the Colossians, Epaphras has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Paul writes to Timothy, For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Or again, to the Christians in Rome, I appeal to you by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. That is the love that comes from the Spirit, that the Spirit works in you. The Spirit empowers and equips us to love one another as Jesus has loved us. The good news about that is loving your sisters and brothers in Christ is not too hard for any of us. It's not beyond any of us. Why? Because we, you, are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And we know what His goal is, to make us like Jesus the Son, that we might love one another. So how are we meant to get on with this task of loving each other? Well, part of the way that the Spirit equips us to love each other is through the use of spiritual gifts. Page 35. First of all, the Spirit gives gifts to each Christian to enable us to serve each other. That is, to to love one another. Now, I'm mindful that um, some of you have travelled a long way to be here tonight, and the occasional gimmick can help. So, um, since we're talking about God giving us gifts, I thought I could at least try to help the kinesthetic learners. So here we go, some free gifts, right? God wants to give us gifts. Here you go, some gifts. Yeah, all right. All right, yeah, there you go. Here you go, ready? Yep. All right, there you go. God likes to give us gifts. Now, He gives us gifts through His Spirit to enable us to love each other. See what Paul says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 12? To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. you realize we've got a bit of a problem? Just look at that verse again. To each is given the manifestation of the... To each. Bit of a problem there in my little illustration, isn't there? Um, I really didn't give each of us a minty. Um, 
really should have given everyone a minty for that to be really a really sort of helpful moment to remember. Yeah. Can we fix that? And Contine, can we give everybody a minty? Is that possible? Can we do that? Yes. George, what a wonder. Okay. <laughs> to each is given. Now, you're going to have to, you have to grab a bundle and pass them along, right? We've got to make sure ev for this to work, everybody has to get one. Everybody. We've got plenty, so we're going to quickly hand it out to everybody. You're smart people. You can work out how to do this fast. Okay, hand up, hand up if you haven't got one yet. Hand up if you haven't got one yet. Okay, let's go. Come on, come on. Hurry up. I know that's the spirit of patience, but, you know, just come on. Yeah. Thanks, Joel. That way. Tom. Yeah, that way. All right, hand up if you still haven't got your minty. Hand up if you haven't got it. Okay, over there, people. Okay. Thanks, Joel. All right. Let's try the verse again. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit. Every believer has the Spirit... Oh, no, I didn't. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That I caught that might be a miracle. Um, to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit. So every, every believer we know has the Spirit, and in every believer the Spirit works in you some spiritual gift. But you did notice the rest of that verse there, didn't you? To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit... For the common good. It's not for you. This manifestation of the Spirit, this gift, is for the common good. It's for the sake of others. So whatever you do, you didn't eat that minty, did you? The gift isn't given... For you, it's so that you can give it to some, you can love someone else. 
I've, yeah. That's guilty chatter, isn't it? That's what I'm hearing, guilty chatter. <laughs> now notice the Apostle Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, like good stewards of the manifold grace of God, serve one another with whatever gift each of you has received. It's not about you. You're just a steward. A steward is someone who looks after someone else's property. You're a steward of God's grace, we're told here, in the form of whatever gift God has given you. It's not your gift, it's His. And to be a good steward means not hoarding it for yourself, it means serving others with whatever gift you've received. That's why you can't keep that minty for yourself. If you're going to be a good steward, you're to use it to serve, to love somebody else. Now let's just be honest, Who's, put your hand up if you've already eaten your minty. So much for the spirit of (laughs) self-discipline. Now let's draw some of these points together. If you really want to love people, then you'll be eager for the gifts of the Spirit. Because that's how He can equip us to love one another. Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians 14, there on your page, pursue love and strive for the spiritual gifts. Or again, later in that chapter, so with yourselves, since you are eager for spiritual gifts, strive to excel in them or be zealous to abound in them for building up the church. This is what the Spirit is doing, empowering and equipping you through whatever gifts He's given you to love others and build the church. Wasn't it great to hear that interview tonight? Three brothers and sisters in Christ who are using the gifts that the Spirit has given them to love and serve others amongst the less reached and less resourced, at cost to themselves. But did you pick up their joy in that service? Now, unlike the Minties, uh, the Spirit does not give us all the same gift. So I really should have had Minties and fantails and a whole bunch of other stuff, you know, next time. That, that, then we say, yes, there's a variety of gifts. That would have worked beautifully, wouldn't it? Yeah, anyway, next time. There's a variety of gifts, but with a profound unity. I'm reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 to 6. Now, there are a variety of gifts but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of services, but the same Lord. There are a variety of activities, but it's the same God who activates all of them in everyone. What's God telling us here? Well, there are a variety of gifts. It's a Spirit-determined diversity, but they are all equally the gifts of the same Spirit, and they're all equally exercised in the service of the same Lord, the Lord Jesus, and they are all equally activated and energized by the same God in each and every person. So there's a profound unity in that they come from the same Spirit, are in the service of the same Lord, and powered by the same God. Therefore, a key implication of this, if they have this unity, is that we honor the diversity of gifts that God has given to His body. If we jump down to Romans chapter 12, verse 6 and verse 10, we have gifts that differ according to the grace given us. 
love one another with mutual affection, outdo one another in showing honour. We're to honour one another, outdo one another in honour and honour the different gifts that are given by the Spirit. Now, there's three traps that we can fall into here, I think, that we have to avoid when it comes to honouring the diversity of gifts that God has given to us. Trap number one, disregarding your own Spirit-gifted contribution. Uh, Paul uses the metaphor for the Christian community of a human body. Have a look there at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14. He says, Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot would say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear would say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. So don't ever think that you need to be like so-and-so or like that person in terms of their gifts in order to be given a vital place in the body of Christ, in the Christian community. We all have different gifts as the Spirit has chosen. Don't despise your own Spirit-equipped contribution. And you might say, oh, I'm not musical, I'm no good at public speaking, I'm not an upfront person. Listen to what Paul says next in verse, four, verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? We need each other. God has arranged us as members of Christ's body as he has chosen. And the implication of what Paul is saying is that we need you with the gifts that God has given you. I need you. The people sitting around you need you with the gifts God has given you for the common good. So don't despise your own spirit-equipped contribution. You might not think much about what you can contribute, but God values it extremely highly because He's the one who gave it to you to use it for the common good. But there's a second trap, despising the contribution of others. Following on from 1 Corinthians 12, there in verse 20, Paul says, As it is, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Just let that sink into your head for the moment. If you are a person who sometimes falls into the trap of thinking, yeah, that person's not got much to give, or, yeah, that person, I mean, they're, they're not that important in the Christian community. If you sometimes fall, you need to repent. Actually, I think sometimes maybe we think of it like, oh, look at her. She's an important person in our community, implied more important than other people. Or he's got gifts, look at what he's doing, implied what other people do, whatever gifts they have, they just aren't as important. I think that's probably how we think about it. Part of the problem is that we bring these worldly values into the Christian community, which was the big problem that Paul was addressing with the Corinthians. 
We, for whatever reasons from our culture, esteem the upfront, the impressive gifts that are more public by nature. Now, it's fine to esteem those gifts. You've just got to esteem the gifts that aren't public by nature just as much. Well, in fact, if we read on, we're told to honour the less esteemed gifts more. I think that's really helpful, isn't it? It's a corrective. It ensures that we value the contribution of every single person. Have a look there from verse 23. And those members of the body that we think less honourable, we clothe with greater honour. And our less respectable members are treated with greater respect. Whereas our more respectable members do not need this. But God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honour to the inferior member, that there may be no dissension within the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honoured, all rejoice together with it. Just as I read those verses again, I'm just struck again by, just think, oh, that we would be like that. (laughs) When one member suffers... We all suffer with it. Such is our love and our commitment to one another. And when one member is honoured, we all rejoice. Such is our unity together. This trap of despising the gifts of others is even worse when you despise the gifts and contribution of others compared to yourself. Even secretly. Yeah, they're not quite at my level yet. They don't quite have the gifts I've got. That is rank. That has the foul stench of pride. You think they're not as good as you, not as valuable, not as significant. Hey, I know you're at Sydney Uni. I know that your whole life or your Fancy-pantsy schools have told you you're the very best of the best and you've believed it somewhere deep inside. And we bring it into the church and we look at one another like that. Here's a gentle word. Wake up to yourself. You are only an unworthy servant who only has whatever gifts you have as an act of God's grace, his undeserved kindness to you. You didn't conjure it up yourself and you certainly never earned it. The whole of your Christian life, from salvation to service, is an experience of God's kindness and grace to you. Don't be tempted by pride. That is a foul stench. And worse, hear the word of the Lord. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And there's a third trap into which we can fall neglecting the gifts given by the Spirit to the body. I think we can do this in two ways. There's a danger as individuals, 
but also as communities of God's people, that we over-restrict the exercise of spiritual gifts so that we effectively put a wet blanket over some of the Spirit's work. Notice in 1 Thessalonians 5 there, Paul addresses the Thessalonian church and he has to say to them, do not quench the Spirit, do not despise the words of prophets. And to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 14, so my friends, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. From what Paul says there in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 1 Corinthians 14, it's clear that it's possible for you to over-restrict the use of gifts. You might forbid speaking in tongues or so despise prophecy that you don't allow it to benefit the Christian community. And we need to not do that. That does not mean that our Christian gatherings end up as sort of spiritual free-for-alls because in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul's very clear that Everything is to be done in an orderly and edifying way, focused on building others up, not on you expressing your own spiritual sort of gift. But it is possible as a community to over-restrict the use of gifts that God's given us, and that's not helpful. And I might come back to that a little bit later on. Second way we could restrict or neglect the gifts given by the Spirit for the growth of the body is, of course, by just not using them. We heard that a little bit in the panel tonight. As Mick shared the results of just his survey of EU graduates and just about a whole bunch of them have these gifts that God's given them, but they're not using. And they're not using because they're in such a well-resourced church. And as we'll talk about more tomorrow night, there is a whole city and country, and world of less reached and less resourced communities of God's people, where those gifts could be being used? Or is that beyond our love? But more of that tomorrow. Let's move on. What sort of gifts does the Spirit give? You can see there at the bottom of page 36, Five lists of gifts from the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul lists some off. There's utterances of wisdom, utterances of knowledge, faith, gifts of healing, working of miracles, prophecy, the discernment of spirits, various kinds of tongues, interpretation of tongues. Later in that chapter, he talks about various people who have been equipped by the Spirit to serve God's church in particular ways. He talks about apostles, prophets, teachers, deeds of power, gifts of healing, forms of assistance, forms of leadership, various kinds of tongues. And in the different lists you get in the New Testament, some of the things are repeated. So the next list there from Romans chapter 12, prophecy, ministry, the teacher, the exhorter, the giver, the leader, the compassionate. Ephesians 4, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. And 1 Peter 4 just has two general sort of categories, whoever speaks and whoever serves, speaking gifts, serving gifts. 
But before we get into the specifics of some of those gifts, some important observations. First, no list in the New Testament is exhaustive. Each list is just indicative of the sorts of gifts given by the Spirit for the building of the church. There are no doubt many more spiritual gifts than are any of those lists. The spiritual gift of bass playing is not listed, I notice, in the New Testament. But who here can doubt that that's a great spiritual gift for the edification of God's people? What makes a gift a gift, though? It seems from the passages listed that what makes something a spiritual gift is its source and its purpose. That is, it comes from the Spirit and it's used for building the church community. Because people often ask me, is there a difference between gifts, spiritual gifts and talents or skills? Well, let's think about that. Every good thing about us comes from God. So in terms of source, there's not really a distinction between gift and a natural, quote-unquote, talent. Some gifts of the Spirit are instantaneous and miraculously granted, like at Pentecost where the disciples suddenly spoke in foreign languages. But others, just as much a gift of the Spirit, are developed over time. Gifts of assistance or leadership or teaching. So spiritual gifts don't have to be instantaneous, they can be grown, developed, honed. But an important distinction between natural talent and gift, in at least gift in the sense it's used in the New Testament, is its purpose. A spiritual gift is for the building of the church, it's given for the common good. I'll give you an example. Can anyone here do origami? You know, flat piece of paper, swan. Can anyone do, or, hand up if you can do origami, because I'm full of respect there. Can you do a swan? You, yeah, can you do a swan? You can do a swan. I so want to get you to do it, but no. Okay. Okay, let's pretend I can do origami, right? Let's pretend you can do origami. Uh, if you can do origami, this is not hypothetical for you. Okay. Can I use my God-given origami skills to build the church of God? to build the body of Christ? Sure I can. I could run origami classes in my local community as a connecting type ministry from our church as a means of building bridges relationally into the community in order to see God's kingdom ultimately grow and people come to Christ. There's just a skill, a talent I've got being used for the common good of God's people, the extension of His kingdom. A God-given talent that has become a spiritual gift for the building of God's people. But if I just make nice little origami swans to decorate my room and never use it in God's purposes, then I'm not sure it's a spiritual gift. It's just a weird pastime. Now, what exactly are some of these gifts that are listed there in the New Testament? For the first point to note is that for many of these gifts, it's quite difficult to say definitively that this thing, X, that's mentioned in the New Testament is definitely what's going on here in my particular church at this particular moment. It's actually, for example, I think it's impossible to claim definitively that tongue speaking is this or that prophecy is this, or that an utterance of knowledge is this, 
and an utterance of wisdom is this. There's just not enough information, I would suggest to you, in the New Testament to say definitively what these gifts were and what these gifts are. Some, I think, are clear. The gifts of healing, gift of working of miracles, the gift of teaching, of generosity, of compassion, of encouragement. But some are not so clear. What is the precise difference between an utterance of wisdom and an utterance of knowledge? What's the special gift of faith over and above the gift of faith in Jesus that the Spirit works in every single one of us? You can build up a pretty good picture of what they might look like, but you just can't be absolutely definitive because there's just not enough information given in the Bible. But I'll mention one just as an example. And if you've got more questions about this, there's an elective that's being run on all the sort of different gifts. It's one of the electives that's on today and tomorrow, and you can go to that, that Katie Rostevsky is running. If you carefully work through 1 Corinthians 14, you can build up a bit of an identical picture of what, say, the gift of prophecy looks like. So I'll just go through this one. It's not really enough to entirely lock it down, what prophecy is, which is why Christians still have different views, but you can learn some things from the Bible like this. Prophecy is divinely inspired speech directed to other people for their building up, for their encouragement and comfort. But it has to be tested or weighed against God's sure revelation in the Scriptures to determine its validity or its orthodoxy. And in this way, contemporary prophecy in the church is not like the written prophecy that we have recorded in the Old Testament, where the prophets that we have recorded in the Old Testament spoke infallible words from God. No contemporary prophecy is automatically authoritative like that. It can be wrong and has to be sifted against the revealed truths of God in Scripture, which are the sure foundation of our faith and life in Christ. But we know that prophecy can come spontaneously, but it's not necessarily spontaneous. It could well be a revelation or an insight gleaned by sustained reflection on God's truth, on the culture of the day and the contemporary situation faced by the church in the light of God's truth. What it might look like isn't necessarily knowledge of the future, though it could be that, and it won't be a new theological truth from God because He's revealed to us everything that we need to know in the Scriptures. But it could be an insight into how God's truth applies into a contemporary situation or a particular pastoral application of God's truth. Well, if you want to talk more about that or some of the other gifts on the list, we'll have fun at question time tomorrow night. Should I expect to see all these gifts in my church? That's a potentially very divisive question, which means we need to be careful because of another vital spiritual fact, namely that the Spirit is meant to produce unity amongst God's people. Look what Paul says there in Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 6. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. It is vital, let me say this very clearly, it is vital that you not become a divisive, factional person. Because as the body of Christ, we are one through the Spirit. So make sure, as Paul says there, actually he begs them, live a life worthy of the calling that we've received, which means living with all humility and patience and gentleness, bearing with one another in love, maintaining unity in peace with one another. So don't destroy the unity of Christ's body through your divisiveness over the Spirit. Broughton Knox comments there on your page, and I've put the whole quote there because I think it's so great. He says, The unique gift of the Holy Spirit to Christians confers on them a real unity which is much deeper than any unity which an organization or a denomination can bring into being. It's an inner unity of a common possession of God's Spirit, who is active in guiding and strengthening those in whom He dwells, and active in drawing them closer together because He draws each closer to Himself. Christians, in seeking unity with another, must not pin their hopes to an outward organizational unity. That would be a form of idolatry, for it would be trusting in something which is other than God. But the unity which is our Christian duty to seek will be found by growing in a deeper knowledge of God's Word through studying it one with another. And so growing in a common faith and in a common experience of God as He is revealed in His Word while at the same time growing in love one for another. All these things are the work of God's Spirit in our hearts, who deepens our knowledge, who deepens our faith, and who deepens our love, if we set ourselves to seek these things by His help. Our unity comes not from being Christians at Sydney Uni, or people supporting the EU, or belonging to this particular denomination, our unity comes from the fact we share in the one Spirit who is pointing us to the one Lord Jesus, who speaks to us through the one Word in the Scriptures and empowers us to love each other like Jesus. So as we head into potentially divisive questions about the Spirit and His gifts, don't grieve the Spirit by becoming divisive. But that still leaves us with the question, should I expect to see these gifts of the Spirit in my church? Let me try to sharpen the question a bit to help us. Will the Spirit give all the gifts to every church? No, because there's not even a list of all the gifts. He's good and will give all the gifts that we need to fulfill our purpose, which is to have an awesome, awesome music team, right? That's, that's our purpose, isn't it? No, you don't need an awesome bass player. What's our purpose? Build one another up in love through the truth. He will give us all the gifts we need to do that.
will the Spirit give particular gifts to every church? Well, it depends what gifts you're talking about. Tongues, prophecy, miracles, words of knowledge, helps, faith? I don't think so. However, what about teaching? Well, since every church is to have elders, and elders, the New Testament says, have to be able to teach, I assume that every church has the gift of teaching. Is it possible that we are quenching gifts the Spirit has given to my particular church? Yes, certainly it is. We can be practically despising some gifts by not leaving space for the exercising of them. Same as maybe never praying that God would bless His people with the gift of tongues or prophecy. Why wouldn't I pray for those gifts if I really believe that tongues do edify the individual? Paul says he wanted all of the Corinthians to speak in tongues. And that prophecy edifies the congregation because Paul was even more eager that they might prophesy because he wants them to go for love, right? Not their own self-experience. So seek for the gifts that will edify others. When we read through the list of gifts in those tables on page 36, did you notice how many of the gifts were speaking gifts? Utterances of wisdom, of knowledge, prophecy, interpretation of tongues, exhorting, teaching. And these are gifts given to different people in the church. The assumption is never that it's only the pastor who has these speaking gifts. Nor is it the assumption that only men get speaking gifts. But in many of our denominations, in the way, and you've got to hear me right here, and I know you won't, but I'm just going to ask you to try. In many of our denominations, in the way we do our church gatherings, we don't leave space for much mutual word ministry when we gather together. Often the only person who gets to use their gifts of this kind is maybe the person who's asked to preach. I understand why that is. And I understand the complexity of having a time of mutual public word ministry. Because it has to be done in an orderly way. Because our God is a God of order. People's contributions have to be weighed against the Scriptures. And that can be messy and challenging pastorally to say, brother, sister, that's just not what God's Word says. That could be a confronting moment in a church gathering, couldn't it? Let's better, better just to not have it. I, I feel sometimes that's the decision we've made. But I do wonder if limiting the exercise of speaking gifts to just the person preaching means that we're overly limiting the gifts that the Spirit has given to us as sisters and brothers in Christ for building up the body together. Just putting it out there. And I'm ducking for cover. <laughs> but what, ought I, what, what could I do about that? What, what ought I do about that? I, you know, as you're saying, I don't run the church. Well, first of all, pray. Pray about it. Second, talk. Talk to the elders because they are responsible before God for the life of your church. Don't start by talking to lots of other people, people who aren't the elders. 
don't try and start your own mini-reformation from your pew. Respect the elders that God has given you, which is part of a more general response. Submit. Submit to what God has said in the Scriptures. That means, among other things, yes, speaking to the elders about your concerns, submit to their leadership out of submission to God. No use complaining and causing division over the presence or absence of particular gifts of the Spirit when your very complaining and causing division indicates a lack of the Spirit's presence and work anyway. Submit to how God says His gifts are to be used. Since tongues are to be interpreted in the corporate gathering, don't just start singing in tongues on a Sunday night because the Bible's very clear. They're to be interpreted so that they might edify the body. And since prophecy is to be weighed and not just accepted, and I think Paul means weighed against the Scriptures by those who are entrusted with the teaching of the congregation, so it's to be weighed particularly by the elders, unless you have elders in your small group who've been appointed according to the standards and the processes set out in the New Testament, it's probably inappropriate to have prophecy in your small group. Submit to how God says these gifts are to be used. What about if you say, well, I've talked to the elders and I've prayed a lot about it. I think they're being overly restrictive. Well, I would say then, bear with the sensitive conscience of your sibling in Christ. Unity and peace in the Spirit are more important than the exercising of anyone's particular Spirit-given gift. What about you say, well, I've talked to the elders and prayed about it, and I think they're being too free. They're not using gifts as they should be used according to the New Testament. But at that point, it may become a conscience issue for you. You need to work out, is this a core or a non-core issue? Is this something over which the Bible speaks clearly? Are most evangelicals in agreement on this, or is this acknowledged amongst evangelicals as a disputed question? You need to exercise some care there. Jump over then to page 38. You may, may well be asking as we come towards the end, what is my spiritual gift? Well, you've probably got more than one. Remember that a spiritual gift can be anything that God's given you that you use to build God's people, either upward in maturity or outward in evangelism. There are probably heaps of skills and abilities God has given you that you can use to love His people and build them up. Accountancy, administration, acrobatics, aerobics, accordion playing, and that's just the A's, right? There's, the, the point is, be creative. How can you use what, who God has made you to be to further His purposes for His people? Spiritual gifts are not the same as passions or favourite activities. They are not even the same as personal strengths. For many years, I've spent a, por a portion of each year doing kids' ministry at our church on a Sunday morning, working with primary school age kids. Let me tell you, that is not an area of strength for me. I find it really hard. Most of the time, I feel like I am just missing the mark. I'm barely keeping them from tearing me apart. But if God has been using me 
to love and serve them and to help those kids grow in some way in the knowledge and love of God, then it's only been possible because even in my weakness, He's gifted me for it through the Spirit. You get it? I'm, it's, I'm weak in this. But if God uses it, it's still a gift. A gift He's given for the common good. Which raises an important point. A more Christ-like question than what's my spiritual gift is probably what needs are there and how might I help meet them? Paul says, pursue love, strive for the spiritual gifts, especially that you might prophesy. He's encouraging Christians to pursue the gifts that will build others up out of love. What are the needs that you can see around you amongst God's people? The reason I started doing kids ministry at our church is because there was no one available to lead and serve one particular age group. There was just no one. So I said, okay, I'll do it. And they seemed to be helped by it in some manner. Because love says, just get in there and do it. At the moment, the need in my church is for musicians in our very small night church. So a few of us from the morning church have decided, okay, we'll go and we'll lead music at night church because that's where the need is. Because it's about love, right? It's not about convenience. It's about others, not my own satisfaction. You might be saying, well, I still don't know how I can serve others. I still don't know how I can do that. Fair enough. Realistically, if you're at uni, you've probably not been serving Jesus long enough to really know what gifts the Spirit has given you to love others. Just get in there and take the opportunities that God opens up to meet the needs amongst God's people so that you might be helped able to grow His kingdom, both upward in maturity and outward in evangelism. You might be surprised how God uses you, what gifts He gives you by His Spirit. And the final point on spiritual gifts is that they are just for now. Look at what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 13 when he contrasts spiritual gifts and love. He says, love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope and love abide, these three, and the greatest of these is love. Turns out that all these spiritual gifts we've been talking about tonight are only until Jesus returns. They will all be surpassed by our experience of the complete when we see Jesus face to face. We won't need prophecy. We won't need tongues or words of knowledge to point us to Jesus because we will see him face to face. Which brings us back to love. Whilst the gifts will come to an end, 
love will never end. We will keep on loving God and loving each other in the power of the Spirit for all eternity. Don Carson, I think, puts it well. He says, The church's manifestation in time of the glories that are yet to come is not accomplished in the gift of tongues, nor even in prophecy, giving, teaching. It's accomplished in love. The greatest evidence that heaven has invaded our sphere, that the Spirit has been poured out on us, that we are citizens of a kingdom not yet consummated, is Christian love. So let's make sure that we love each other more and more now and into eternity in the power of His Spirit. Let me lead us in prayer. O Spirit of the living God, Thou light and fire divine, descend upon Your church once more and make it truly Thine. Fill it with love and joy and power, with righteousness and peace till Christ shall dwell in human hearts and sin and sorrow cease. Father of love, thank you for your great love for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Empower us by your Spirit within us to love one another deeply from the heart and to do so more and more, that we might be like you in the world and that people might know that we are Jesus' disciples because of our love for one another, empowered by you. Amen. We're going to continue.